On Friday, October 2nd, 2015, Christian Lewis Johnson, age 50, from St. George, Utah, fell several hundred feet to his death on the first rappel while canyoneering with three others in Not Emily Canyon. This canyon is a side canyon of Emily Canyon, and it has become increasingly popular in recent years as a shorter, drier route to Emily Canyon. However, it is not any less technical or dangerous. The park was alerted at 1 p.m. by one of the group members as a rescue operation was started immediately. A helicopter was used to drop off a search and rescue team at the top of the canyon. Johnson was canyoneering with three others, including his husband, Everett DeGlay. The two had been canyoneering together since 2010 and had descended more than 100 canyons 200 times in five states, according to DeGlay. This was the couple's second descent of Not Emily Canyon. Hello, and thanks for joining me for another episode of the Canyons Are Calling podcast. I'm Cheryl's Jocelyn, your host for the show. This episode is a really personal one for me. Lewis and Everett were really great friends and mentors to me. I met them about a year after I started canyoneering. And we just had some really, really awesome times. One of my favorite adventures that we went on was when we hiked up um, to Crawford Arch. And it was on Halloween, it was just the three of us. And one of the sections that we had to climb up on our approach there was a little sandstone section that wasn't very far across, but it was pretty exposed and pretty, um, pretty high up and I really felt like I was going to slip and fall. And Lewis assured me that I would be fine. And he came halfway back across and reached over to help me across and just assured me that my shoes and my skills would be able to make it. And it did. And I trusted him and I trusted my gear. And I, you know, I went across and it was totally fine. It was way less scary than I thought it would be. We went up and enjoyed the view of the arch and the visitor center and the canyon, and it was super incredible. And on our hike back down, we took the expressway down, which is Tom explains in his latest rave on Canyoneering USA is the wedge, um, where we repel 300 feet down by the tunnel in Zion. And every time I go through Zion to this day, when I'm crossing on the switchbacks, I look up to there and remember how fun it was to rappel down that 300 feet that most people don't even know exists. Um, Some of my other favorite memories were right after we very first met, I had a birthday party out in Las Vegas, thinking that in March, Las Vegas is going to have some phenomenal weather. And we woke up in Red Rocks, and it had snowed. And so most of our approach that morning was in snow. But by the end of the day, all the snow was melting and we had waterfalls in our canyon and it was so beautiful and so much fun. And then the next day we were doing a canyon called Motorcycle Canyon and it was 70 degrees and so hot. And it was just a really strange contrast from the day before. We ended that canyon soaking in some hot springs and enjoying the beautiful river there by Lake Mead. Um, anyway, our adventures with Lewis were definitely cut way too short as his husband, Everett, is here to explain in his tragic story of Emily Canyon. So, without further ado, I'll get on to my interview with Everett. I hope you enjoy the show.
Okay, so Everett, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you? My name's Everett Boutier. I am a New Yorker who found his way to the Southwest, Utah in particular. I've spent a lot of time in Utah, fell in love with Southern Utah and uh, national parks. Uh, I've enjoyed Utah and the parks forever. Right now, I'm, I've ended up in Phoenix and have lived a lot of life between uh, New York and now. And then tell us a little bit about Lewis. Wow, you know, yeah, it's uh, it's a little tough to talk about Lewis since he has passed. But I I can say all the memories are fond. Um, we were together for 21 years. Lewis was passionate about canyoneering. He's the he's the reason we began canyoneering. He he was like the guiding spirit for not just canyoneering, but in our relationship. Lewis was always the person who was the adventurous one, the ones with big, the one with uh, big dreams, and. Um, I, on the other hand, was always the cautious one, the one who took care of the finances, made made the plans, had my feet firmly on the ground. And a, a friend of mine would say, Everett, you're the earth in Lewis. He's the sky. He's, he's just reaching for things. I see that for yeah, sure. Yeah, he had a great spirit. Yeah. The one thing I remember most is his smile. Oh, man, his smile. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's... Such an infectious um, smile. The whole story of, of Lewis and him leaving us, uh, the smile is another thing that played a big part because at the first rappel in the canyon where he lost his life, he we arrived at the edge and he kind of dove into the, the bushes, the scrub at the, the top of the rappel and pulled a, a um, mylar balloon we were deep in the backcountry, mind you, in Zion, and we would often, unfortunately, run into these balloons, and, and Lewis seemed to be extra skilled at finding them. Anyway, he pulls this one out. It's br a bright yellow smiley face, and I have a picture of him. He immediately just held it up and covered his, you know. As if it was his head. <laughs> his face. So, yeah, here's here's Lewis, six foot tall, six foot two inches tall with a, with a a big yellow smiley face for a head. <laughs> so yeah, his his smile uh, was was kind of a theme, if you will, throughout uh, the days after his death. Just everybody recalling his smile, and mm -hmm. and I, I remember going through pictures that would be shown in a. They actually ended up in a slideshow, and there were just hundreds of pictures. There, there were like no pictures without Lewis smiling. He had a fantastic smile. Yeah, I still have that T-shirt with his big smile. And then it became the T-shirt that <laughs> Cameron and others helped design and put out, and became a fundraiser that uh, ended up donating three thousand dollars, I think, to uh, an environmental group, the Great Old Broads for Wilderness. So yeah, the smiley face played played a part at the end. Very cool. 
So, I don't know if we want to jump right into the story with the accident or if we want to tell some other fun stories first. What how do you feel? I'm I'm good with I'm good with anything. I, there were so many fun stories. I I'm not sure what I would uh tell. I'm perfectly comfortable talking about the accident. I think it's vital. Okay. It it was vital in the aftermath to talk about it it was part of the healing process and it's surprising you know with when someone passes uh, the difficulty that people have dealing with with death you know what what to say you know famously people are like I, I just don't know what to say they don't know what to say me included and now having gone through this uh, jarring personal experience I can say that saying something is important and it really almost doesn't matter what you say, but but just f you know find something to say because it, it is important to talk about it and to keep talking about it. So I, I have no qualms about talking about it, and I I do hope that people learn from our experience. Okay, so if you don't mind just starting out, um, tell us what it was. I remember this day because it's my rebirthday from heroin. I overdosed oh on October 2nd, 98. Wow. Yeah, so October 2nd stands out for me. Well, um, it sure stands out for me <laughs> now, too. Yeah. I, I'll never forget the day we were out with some relatively new canyoneers, a couple from Los Angeles, and we were kind of leading the trip. And it was, I would say, one of those typical Zion days where the sun is just brighter than bright and the sky bluer than blue and it was just a, a perfect day and we're, we're all excited and just just ready to go and yeah we um it's a long story and, and um I'm not sure what I should focus on first but I just wanted to mention that the the yeah. day the day was uniquely Zion, uniquely special and beautiful and gorgeous and that's why we both love the park so much. Mm -hmm. Especially in October, it's a beautiful time. October there. is like the perfect time <laughs> to go, the, mm -hmm. you know, you have fall foliage but the temperatures have moderated, the um, monsoons have passed so the safety factors is, uh, it's pretty good, it's a pretty safe time to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you woke up super duper early, got a yeah, Start up the hill. Even, even though it's not Imlay, which is known as not necessarily a full day canyon, but any canyon, you know, where you delve into the backcountry and then rappel into the narrows, it, it's fairly involved. And uh, because we did have beginners with us, uh, we did get up early. And yeah, but, but the pace was leisurely. And I remember we, we had completed the long hike in and we were at the top of the rappel and that's where we decided to to take lunch so i guess we didn't get started too early because we we did have lunch at the top so we were, we were like a half hour at the top of this first rappel which is kind of strange to think about mm -hmm. that we sat there on the edge for so long this this place where he ended up going over the edge and, and not coming back yeah. So after lunch, you set up the rappel. How did that We were look? eager to go. I remember Lewis jumped up and, you know, we took charge and 
Shannon and Julian kind of uh, held back uh, because they were beginners and they were, you know, letting us take the lead. We had done the canyon once before. It's important to say that it had been at least a year, maybe, maybe more since we had had it. And we had done so many canyons that um, one, one of the things people have said is, well, you did it before. How could this have happened? And the thing is, Lewis and I packed in so many canyons in such a short period of time that the canyons did really start to blend together for us. But in hindsight, yeah, yeah, we, we definitely should have uh, known better. We should have been able to prevent what happened. But Lewis jumped up, he had the rope, so he took charge. He pulled out the 100 foot rope. We had it in our heads that we were setting up for a 100 foot rappel. It's important to know that there are different sets of beta for this canyon. And we had done the canyon with Tom Jones, actually. So Tom Jones had his beta. And, and he had actually established this new rappel, the new first rappel, I call it, where you do the full, I believe it's a 280 foot drop. And where it, whereas it used to be, you would go 40 feet off to the left, closer to the edge, off a tree at the edge. And that was known as Luke's beta because uh, Luke has the canyon betaed as well. And so his beta had you going off the tree and that was a, a, approximately a hundred foot rappel to a small ledge where there was a large tree. And then you, that's where you set up the second rappel. So it was a 100 foot drop to the tree and then a 180 foot drop to the bottom of the, the canyon, to the bottom of that specific section. So in effect, it was a two stage rappel and Tom had turned it into a, basically a, just a single drop. And somehow that notion was out of our heads. And I do remember Lewis, uh, also, he doubled our rope, which was another issue. So, so many questions in this accident, but one of the questions was, well, why did you double the rope? Um, if, if, he had, if he hadn't doubled the rope, he would have had enough length to kind of swing over to where the 100-foot rappel ends. He would have been able to make it over to where he wanted to go when, when he fell. So, and I did say to Lewis, um, you know, why are you doubling it? Because you don't always double the rope. And um, we, we did actually uh, start doubling our rope a lot because it's just a faster technique. And in this case, obviously, uh, Lewis could have lived if, had we not doubled the rope. And, and I didn't press the issue. I just thought, well, okay, he... He had it doubled, he was gung-ho, he was flaking it out doubled, and I uh, just, you know, I acquiesced. And sometimes I blame myself for that, for not uh, just saying, you know, well, maybe wait a second, let's think this through. I think one factor in the accident is we had been sitting for a half hour, we were raring to get started, we were eager, and, and so that could have been a factor like just getting on that rope too quickly that being said um it, it's a dramatic 
rappel where you go over a, a long curved sandstone edge and, and so you you walk it back a ways and and I Lewis posed I got several pictures I have a picture of him on rope at the top huge smile and and then he's halfway down the edge it, it's not a rappel where you can see the bottom because you are you are at the top and he's going over an edge so you you can't see the bottom it's another factor in the accident it's just this fact that we never saw him we never never saw him we couldn't see him but uh, the last photo of Lewis is uh, him from the waist up so he's halfway over the the edge and I got one last shot of him again a, a smile and an important thing that I like to point out in the photos is just over his right shoulder there was a large the top of a large pine tree and part of me thinks that just the fact that there was this tree like right in the line of sight kind of gave us a sense of false assurance that he really was doing a hundred foot rappel and that he was going to make it to this tree because it, the tree was visible. It was a tall, large tree, and it was visible in the photograph. So this isn't like a sheer drop right off the edge. There's, there's more nuance to it. Mm -hmm. and, and actually, what we discovered after I did... I actually did the canyon one year later on the anniversary of the accident... And, and actually went with Luke and Tracy and a, a few other close friends. And part of our motive was to get it in our heads what exactly happened here. Because it was such a hard accident for people to wrap their heads around. If, especially if you haven't done the canyon. It's like, how could this possibly have, have happened? But I, in my head, after viewing the photographs that the uh, rescue crew took which I was able to obtain from the park service. There were, there were pictures of the rope and pictures of how you could tell from these photos that Lewis had tried to move to his right over to where this tree is that I keep talking about. And the rope simply wasn't long enough to make it down that far. But So there are edges kind of over on that side of the wrap. And when you, when you look down, it was obvious to me when I got on rope, I looked down and in my head, before I took this one year trip, I figured he must've thought he could land on the edge. He must've looked down and thought it's wide enough. Yeah, it's dropped, but I can drop down to it and, and then go ahead. And, and he, you could see the anchor on, at the base of this tree. So in my head, he's moved to the right, swung the rope to the right, obviously ran out of rope, but still thought he could make it to that ledge and set up the next wrap. So going down the rappel, I thought, oh yeah, that, that edge actually looks pretty wide and that just had to be what he was thinking. So, so for me, going down that rappel confirmed I, I believe confirms my theory that that is indeed what he was trying to do but then as I went further down the wrap these this ledge that I had from the top looked like a single ledge 
was actually a series of, of fins of rock, if you will, that were, you know, maybe each one was like a foot wide. But these, this, this wasn't a solid three, three foot or more ledge. It was a series of ledges that from the top, looking down, looked like one ledge. But as I wrapped, I just said to myself, oh no, oh no, because it was, it was one skinny ledge, and then another skinny ledge, and then another skinny ledge, was, which was in no way landable. And when he went over, I, I did hear, I did hear him hit, and there were a couple of hits, and actually there were even scrapes on the rock where it was obvious he had hit, you know, hit the rock, hit, hit two of these ledges before he went all the way over. So that kind of helps explain how it happened. Of course, there's a million other questions that subsequently went through my mind and questions that others had, like, you know, why didn't you do this and why didn't you do that? So there's there's actually a tons of stuff you could talk about and also things that, you know, literally kept me awake for the next 48 hours. I couldn't sleep. I relived the accident. It was on, it was like it was on loop going through my head and I just heard the the sounds, you know, the the crash, like like the initial impact and then the second impact and then a yell slash scream and these these sounds and, and the scream was lodged I can't tell you like it was lodged in my brain and I could not get rid of it and and then of course there was seconds I don't know how many seconds of of utter silence before the huge final crash so I had this entire sequence in my head and I could not sleep just could not sleep and and after a couple of days I it, it did leave me it's like almost like I knew that this wasn't good for me and I I need to get I needed to get it out of my head and and I remember when it left and I, I almost thought, oh, I felt a sense of relief that I thought, oh gosh, it, it's, is it really gone? And it did come back. It came back a couple of times and, and then it, it, it did finally leave. And, and to this day, I don't like the number of sounds, but, but the specific sounds are thankfully, they, they are out of my head. And what you learn to do with grief is compartmentalize. So I've, I've put a lot of this in a compartment in, in the back of my head. I think that's how we all survive trauma like this. But I, you know, I, I remember, I do remember most of the details and I, I do try to still talk about them because I, I do feel it's important. So what do you do differently now when you're in a canyon? specifically because of this accident. Mm -hmm. I'm cautious. I am so cautious. I, ironically, I always was the cautious one and Lewis was the more, in the write-up after, I, I called him impulsive, which I, I hope nobody was offended by because and he, he knows, he knew, mm -hmm. he knows. 
he was impulsive, he was always eager, he would sometimes uh, choose a route that didn't necessarily seem to be the safest, and we'd have to kind of hold him back and say, well, wait a minute, let's, let's look at this more carefully, you know, yeah, we can make it to there, but then what do we do after that, and maybe it's better to go over here. And so that, that was me, and I can remember Carol Petrelli and I on a route having to talk Lewis down because he wanted to take this shorter, but to, to us, uh, scarier and, and perhaps not as safe route. And he was, he was kind of ticked about it. In the end, I, I, I think our route was best. And so that, that's just one example. I, I do recall another example of uh, Lewis and I both loved down climbing. I think we were particularly skilled at it after a while. And, and we would like to try to down climb everything possible. But I remember one time in particular where he was just too eager and ready to kind of dive into a chimney. And I said, Lewis, please, please just wait, wait. Let me scope it out. Let me look at it. It, and we ultimately decided, you know, you know, no, don't, don't go down in there without a rope. We're, we're going to drop a rope at least to at least have a hand line, you know. So it, that's, that's just a notion. And, and I kind of left out uh, the beginning of the accident. Um, a, a factor in his death, the main factor, I believe, was impatience. Because I lost all track of time you know, for, for the details of the accident. But I do believe that he was at the end of the rope for short of five minutes. I feel like we didn't have time to think. We didn't have time to think through our thoughts. He obviously was, I assume, frightened, nervous, panicked, probably panicked. His voice definitely sounded panicked. And looking back, I thought, you know, just tie off, tie off, sit in your harness. I don't care if it's 10 minutes, 20 minutes, a half an hour. Give us time to think this through. I didn't verbalize any of this. Right, you didn't have time to, I, right? I, I really didn't. I mean, we had a brief conversation. And I was a little frantic. He was a little frantic. And we were kind of, I, I couldn't hear him really well, but so I had moved over to the edge. Strangely enough, I was at the tree, hanging onto the tree that, that we should have wrapped off, leaning over the edge because he was a hundred feet down and not Emily is actually a short canyon. So you can actually hear the Virgin River from there. So there's the noise of the river this is the, the, the top of the rappel, so there's a lot of wind. There was wind, there was sound of water, plus he's 100 feet down over the edge. So it was pretty hard to hear him. But I did grab the tree, I leaned over, so we had some quick back and forth. He, he was a little panicky, I was a little panicky. Neither one of us at that moment uh, knew what to do. And he actually cut me off, and I'm a little sorry to say, his last words were, Everett, shut up. Oh, man. It's, it's funny now, and I don't, I don't beat myself up over it. 
because uh, Lewis and I would bicker on occasion more in a playful way but you know in that moment you know things are said but so I actually backed off I backed away from the ledge I just tried to think I just tried to think 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 you know what can we do because because uh, Shannon uh, Jillian and I we had already gone through our minds okay uh, the second rope, the second rope, where's the second rope? Well, Lewis had the second rope, which uh, is another big mistake. Many mistakes that we made that day. Uh, so that was another mistake, is Lewis had the rope, and actually I think that rope, um, ironically, I think he could have maybe used that rope to somehow save himself when, when I was not sleeping the first 48 hours in aside from the the sounds going through my mind was every thought imaginable like what could I have done what could I have done what could I have done and I was had scenario after scenario after scenario none of which I had time for on the day the accident actually happened and so I got a little off tangent there but um so anyway he did we did, we were able to communicate. Oh, but, but my main factor is Lewis didn't give us time. He didn't give us time to figure something out. I feel like if we had just had the time, even if we had to have said, Lewis, we're not sure what to do, tie off, sit tight, and go for help. There's no phone coverage there. Uh, but, you know, we could have ran if we had to back as far as possible until we could have made a phone call and and we did eventually make that phone call unfortunately it was a phone call um that's another story where, where i admitted to the person on the phone that it was going to be a a um recovery. not a rescue but a recovery a recovery effort where in my head i i verbalized what i knew what i knew in my head you know that he didn't survive and because Julian and Shannon had kept telling me, um, Everett, there's a chance. There's a chance. We've got to get help. There's a chance. You know, I, I said, I kept saying, yeah, but he couldn't have survived it. He could not have survived that. No one could have survived that. My, my head knew that. But I think they were just trying to buck me up, if you will. Yeah, be optimistic of that outcome. But we did make it to Scouts look at, Lookout, sorry, where we did get cell coverage and, and we did have an emergency device that's important to say so in the in the meantime we had left Jillian behind and she had pushed the button many times so they, they had several markings of of where we were they they were aware that a situation was happening and then I was verbally able to provide uh, more of the details so that the recovery efforts could begin so by the time you got down to scout lookout they were already activated and on their way you know they they were getting ready yeah but okay. they had like lining up the helicopter lining up the yeah. crew that takes a while because uh, we we got i would say we got to scouts lookout in an hour within an hour um but yeah I was able to say, and they were, they were frankly a little puzzled because those, those, those markings with the DeMorm device or whatever, whatever mm -hmm. device it was, 
they're not exactly perfect. So they certainly had a general idea of where we were, and, and I, so I confirmed top of Nat Imlay, first rappel, yeah. and and then it went from there, and it, it was really a a day long effort. I was at the emergency command center, I, I think, until seven o'clock at night before we got the the final word that they were they were there. They confirmed that you know he had passed, and, and so. From then on, it, you know, it did become a recovery effort, and he was actually, uh, Jillian was brought out, and um, Lewis's body was flown out early the next morning. Wow. Someone on the crew sat there at the top. I, I, I believe they had retrieved his body and headed at the top and, and then it was too dark so I was told that someone sat there slept whatever overnight and then wow. and then he was taken out the next morning hmm. well one thing I do differently now if I cannot see the bottom of a rappel I always block with the contingency anchor, always. That's so smart. Even if I drop the bag and I can hear it land. Yes. Like just something in my brain, if it hits a shelf or something and it's not actually on the bottom. That actually happened to me once. Yeah. I probably shouldn't admit that that was an, an, another uh, mishap. But um, again in Zion at, uh, what's the canyon? Um, you know when you're kind of on the way to telephone. But then was it Behunin? Behunin. Every time I do Behunin, is it that third repel? Like it's stuck yes. in that pocket? I don't. Yep. I don't think it got stuck in a pocket. But what <laughs> happened? You you mentioned not being able to hear. Mm -hmm. So I, I toss the rope. I I I hear the thwack, and I'm like, great, solid ground. Well, guess what? It was solid wall, solid sandstone wall. The ball had hit the. Oh, the, the bag hit the, the bag wall. Had and hit it was the just wall, and it was hanging. I was about 40 feet off the deck. Okay, that makes sense. And I had to tie off, and and the, the second rope was at the top. This was before Liz died. Um, yeah, a uh, second rope was was dropped, and I switched ropes, and you know, mm -hmm. we we salvaged it. But yeah. yeah, these just so many things can happen. Yeah. I mean that Behunin wrap, that's pretty far down. Yeah, so it's you like can't, a 200 you feet, can't you can't see, see the bottom. So you cannot rely on sound, mm -mm. Another, just yet another lesson. Yeah, so we block with the figure eight and then oh, are and able to lower people yes. down. So the rope I was on, uh, there was not enough to lower me, so that's why they did okay, have to, right. they had to uh, drop the, the second one. rope. Those are definitely good skills to practice and know how to do before practice, you get practice, in a canyon practice. and have to use it. I mean... Like passing nods, switching robes lowering people ascending <laughs> how yeah, many times you your rope gets stuck and you have to go back I, I i almost feel a little stupid mentoring all all the mistakes that we made but uh lewis didn't carry descenders like we carried one set as a team and i was the one that i i'm the one that usually um up climbed if necessary like i i have had to retrieve stuff and unstick ropes and such. Mm -hmm. um, I've probably done it about five times. 
And so I always carried them and he didn't have them. And so another question people may have is, well, why didn't you lower them to him? Number one, we had nothing long enough to lower them to him because the rope, it wasn't free hanging. Like we could have attached the beaners to the rope, but the rope was trapped going over the edge, you know, completely tight to the slit rock, slip rock. So there was no so way no play in there. You, you, we could have we couldn't see him, so we could have maybe tossed them and crossed our fingers that Lewis yeah. could have grabbed them. But again, uh, yet the another time. thing that we didn't even have time to discuss that option. Yeah. yeah. But everybody should have descenders, even if they're mm -hmm. um, uh, tib locks or um, what's the the ones with the ropes, the... Uh, the, um, Pressics? Pressics. yeah. yeah. Those I, are super lightweight and in, easy to carry. In, uh, in my, in our uh, classes that Lewis and I took, and we did take classes, um, yeah, I, I mean, we could do Pressics. I had Pressics. I didn't use it much. I always used the tip locks. Mm -hmm. But, I don't know. I really do think probably everybody should have a set. Yeah. And I stupidly keep mine in the top of my pack instead of on my harness, which they should probably yeah, be more easy to access when you're going. Exactly. I mean, you could, you could get them. You could get them out of your pack. They'd be a lot harder. And if mm -hmm. you're in panic mode, yeah, much much better if if they're on your waist. Good to know. Yeah. Well, how about we talk about your favorite canyon snacks? Because that is super important to me. <laughs> <laughs> My snacks have evolved. I mean, gosh, I've probably tried every energy bar out there. Um, but I don't eat so many energy bars anymore, but I, I love my Laura bars. I love the, the pro bars. Um, I, there's a lot of good ones, actually. Um, I love the flavors that Cliff Bar keeps coming out with. I've got a, a coffee Cliff Bar right now in the truck that I'll be eating this morning. But, you know, uh, as a vegan and a really healthy person, I've uh, actually my favorite snacks are now fresh. I've switched to fresh food. I have my, my snap peas and my baby carrots and my... Um, mini sweet peppers and I always slice up an apple nice so yeah fresh food yeah. for me I love fresh veggies and some hummus it's yeah super good what's your favorite after canyon beverage you know I am not a big drinker and uh so I'm not I'm not the one that's holding up the beer at the end of the the uh adventure um gosh I don't really have a go-to, you know. Just I'll get back to the truck and I'll down, <laughs> I'll down water. Some water. There's nothing wrong with some good water. Yeah. It's the best for you, probably, <laughs> for sure. All right, and then we don't want to end on a really sad note. So, if you could go anywhere in the world, where would you go and why? I want to go to Machu Picchu. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I do too. It's Let's like a lifelong trip. desire of mine, and I feel like it's within reach, and and it's. It's actually interesting now in this time of COVID. Uh, I, I I did find a new partner, and I'm in a new relationship, newish relationship, and we have a deposit 
somewhere in Peru that that we paid in 2019 and then had to cancel the trip and um, I'm just waiting for COVID to yeah they, they assured us that um, yeah you, everything's fine we have your deposit and uh, you'll be able to go next year and, and uh, we're thinking uh, probably not I mean it's a difficult trip and you know the vaccines are on the way but we're talking Peru we're talking you know South America lots of travel plans flight connections and uh, so we're, we are not planning we didn't get to go last year probably not going to happen this year but uh, maybe someday maybe maybe next year that'd be awesome yeah that'd be really cool yeah all right anything else you want to say before we end today I'm good I can't think of anything compelling to say except that I love canyoneering. I have found I'm easing out of it. I am, uh, I'll be 59 this year. So you could say maybe I'm aging out of it a little bit. Canyoneering, interestingly enough, it was always Lewis's, it was both of our passion, but he led us into it. It was always his number one activity. For me, it was always maybe my second or third favorite activity, but I understand the allure of it. I understand the excitement, the thrill. Um, the challenge and, and and I totally respect all of that and anyone who does it and I understand the appeal and the draw and after Lewis passed I, I did tell everyone just keep getting out there Lewis would have wanted everyone keep getting out there but just be safe be safe be safe well said Thank you very much for sharing your story. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode with Everett, the Canyons Are Calling podcast. I'd like to address a couple things that we talked about. Everett mentioned Luke and Tom. That's Luke from BlueGnome.com and Tom from Inlay Canyon Gear and Canyoneering USA. I will have linked to the beta about Not Inlay Canyon from both of those websites in the show notes. Um, I'll also have a link for the figure eight contingency anchor on the show notes so that you'll know what we're talking about. Um, an anchor to lower people there. Um, Lewis and Ever are actually the people that taught me how to use that block um, because I had met them early on in my canyoneering career. They were... Um, doing some classes and they were learning a bunch and they taught me a lot of that they had learned and um, that was one of the things and unfortunately they did not set the anchor in that way on that day and Lewis's adventures with us were definitely cut way too short and so moving forward after that if I can't see the bottom of a rappel I always set my anchor either with the figure eight block or another way that I'm able to lower the first person to the ground so that we know that they make it safely. Um, canyoneering is a very dangerous sport, so let's make sure that we're always using our best decisions when we're out there. Um, also in the show notes, I'm going to have links for our Facebook page, our Facebook group page, The Canyons Are Calling. I'm also on Instagram at Canyons Are Calling. If you have any ideas for the show, you can reach out to me at um, the canyons are calling at gmail.com.
Um, I'll also have links to the Canyoneering USA website just so you can reach out to me at work or read Tom's latest raves. He has some interesting stuff in there sometimes. Um, shout out to Chris Zollinger, who's playing this amazing hand drum music in the background. And also to Tig Booth, who played the intro music at the beginning of the show. And to my awesome husband, Dave, for reading the accident report at the beginning as well. Anyway, the canyons are calling. Let's go.